Welcome to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to the Female Insight Zone. This is Mary Beth Kosmeski. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Natalie Nixon. She is a design strategist and a hybrid thinker with a background in anthropology and fashion. At Figure Eight Thinking, LLC, she helps organizations accelerate innovation and growth by developing meaningful strategy through design thinking and ethnographic research. So super, super interesting. I cannot wait to ask you some questions about your unique background. Thank you, Natalie, for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's awesome. So how does one get involved in anthropology and fashion? Well, actually, in some ways, fashion came first. The women in my family are very gifted in the fiber arts. My mom was a weaver. My grandmom and great aunts were amazing seamstresses and needle pointers and knitters and crocheters. And I learned to sew when I was around eight years old and kind of carried that forward throughout my teens as functional art and ended up studying anthropology separate from any making any kind of connection between the two in college. And then when I was in my early 20s living in New York City, I started a hat design business called Nat's Hats. And I really started it out of need because I was living in New York. I wasn't earning a ton of money and I couldn't afford to buy all the pretty frocks I would see in windows. And I started making everything. I made my entire wardrobe and I made my winter coat and outfits for work and hats too. And my friends started saying, you know, Nat, you should sell this. I would buy this. And so long story short, I gathered up the courage one day to walk into a boutique where I like to window shop, introduce myself as a hat designer. I had the hat on my head and a couple hats at home. And she said, sure, let's set up a meeting. And she ended up buying all of my hats that I showed her. I went home and promptly sewed about 20 hats I didn't know the difference between inventory and samples at the time. (laughs) And that's how that started. And then later I worked in global fashion sourcing in the fashion industry. I worked for a division of the limited brands. I worked for a company called Mast Industries, which is now its own separate company. But one of the things you quickly begin to understand about fashion, especially those of us who have worked in fashion, is how much others who've never worked in the business take it for granted and don't understand necessarily the value and significance of it. And one of the elements that you learn in cultural anthropology are things around symbolism and semiotics and and that sort of thing. So like more on a kind of scholarly academic level, that's the connection between fashion and anthropology. But as someone who worked in the business of fashion, I use my skill set in cultural anthropology every single day. And I still do because anthropology is a lens and it's a, it's a way of seeing. I like to say it gives us the worm's eye view of society, whereas the other social sciences like economics and social and poli-sci give you more kind of the bird's eye view of society. Got it. So I know that you are a specialist in innovation and growth and helping organizations to strategize and think a little bit differently. Talk about what that means and how you started to get into that and some of the things that you've been doing. Well, I started my company, Figure Eight Thinking, three years ago, and it really started after I gave a TEDx Philadelphia talk in 2014. And during that talk, I was really sharing out ideas that were an extension from my doctoral studies. And basically, I was 
in a nutshell, I was talking about the, the value of working and organizing ourselves more improvisationally than the ways that jazz musicians do. Because jazz is a complex system that where, where people get really excellent at ebbing and flowing between order and structure and then chaos and randomness. And after that talk, I started getting invited to speak to and give workshops at a number of range of companies and large nonprofits. And my husband actually encouraged me to formalize it into a company. He's like, Nat, this is becoming a thing. You should formalize this. So I did. So after I gave this TEDx Philadelphia talk, I started getting invited to a lot more companies and organizations to share out on these ideas and learned really quickly that what companies were calling innovation, I was really calling creativity. And that really fell under the the category of helping organizations to work more collaboratively, to optimize teaming, to see what artists call, what visual artists call the negative space. And so at the same time, when I first started my business, I was also a professor. I was a professor actually for 16 years. And I started something called the Strategic Design MBA program. So really in my, my academic practice as a professor and then my, my creative practice as a design strategist, there were a lot of overlaps and intersections in my academic work of these executive MBA students who were coming from a range of sectors. I was teaching, I developed a program where our faculty were, were teaching them how to integrate design thinking into the ways that they were learning leadership and management, operations, finance, and marketing. And I was extending that into my own practice at Figure Eight Thinking. Got it. So a company like Apple, they have been accused of not being as innovative, although they were incredibly innovative, but there hasn't been recently, and the, the criticisms come from you know the different media and things like that about that they haven't innovated their product. So if you were to accelerate innovation at Apple, what would you suggest? Well, I think one of the things that Apple has been good at is to always drive their evolution of their product, even though they do seem sometimes to be micro evolutions, always going back to the end user, which is something that they were at, in the forefront of before a lot of other companies have finally begun to understand that rather than drive the growth of your business based on profit margin goals and operational efficiencies and productivity goals, if you drive the growth of the business based on the needs of the consumer, that in turn will drive profitability and efficiencies and productivity. I think that any ways that, you know, the scary part for a company like Apple is that when they look in the rearview mirror, they don't necessarily see anyone there. So that actually is uh, in some ways a more difficult position to be in versus when you are a smaller upstart and you have to develop a lot more grit and resilience. It actually gets harder to maintain that edge and that grit when you have really captured a strong foothold in a market. So my advice to they ask me would be to continually look to in these unexpected and unsuspecting areas and places for new insights about the direction of where people's needs are. Because it's because we forget sometimes that the basic meaning of the word technology is that technology is a tool. Technology in and of itself is meaningless if you're not contextualizing it in terms of people's lives. What do they wake up needing and doing and seeking and yearning for and connection to family and to friends? And that's really what should drive any kind of 
product or service that a company is developing. So my advice would be to always never lose that ability to connect back to the people and sometimes newer markets of people who maybe they, they weren't even looking at earlier to drive the business. Right. So you mentioned that, you know, sometimes the larger companies, if they don't see anyone in the rearview mirror, they're not pushed in the same way. And, you know, so many years ago, this happened to Kodak, right? So they, they were yes. not looking in the rearview mirror. But there's companies that are like Kodak right now. And I don't know which ones they are, but they're there. And, yes. you know, how do companies avoid that situation where, hey, they're the product leader. Everything is great. Profitability is good. We're not going to change a bunch of things. I mean, what would you do if you were recommending going into a company that had that sort of mindset? They weren't really accelerating their innovation. Well, one thing that I recommend is you have to always ensure that there is thought diversity in the room and in the departments and, and the ways that you hire. So one way to ensure that is to start creating some internal churn around hiring for out of spaces and, and sectors that you typically would be an anomaly in your organization. So for example, it's not as odd anymore, but I'd say 10 years ago, it was still pretty novel when companies were looking to hire anthropologists, for example. So corporate anthropologists becoming much more of a thing um, because anthropologists are trained to ask very different sets of questions than say someone from finance or accounting or even traditional marketing. Similarly, if you start to think about hiring musicians or artists or a range of psychologists, you know, the hit HBO television show Billions, one of the things I love about that show is that a pivotal character and mover and shaker in that story is is the hedge funds a psychologist. You know, that he specifically was very smart about understanding so much of what makes him tick as a successful fund manager is his mindset. And so he didn't want just a traditional human resource specialist. He really wanted to make sure someone who understood psychology, not only to help his internal employees, but help them to anticipate the mindset and choices that his competitors might make. So that's that to me, I always look at that I mean, as a really fun and great example of hiring beyond the traditional wealth. So that example from Billions is one, but that just is to, to emphasize my point that you can't keep hiring from the same wheelhouse. You can't keep drinking from the same well if you want different results. The more diverse the inputs, the more innovative the outputs. The second thing I think is really important, it's similar, but it's kind of taking it out a few levels, is to stop benchmarking against people in your own sector. And in design thinking, that's called lateral thinking. So it's really important to start being more curious about what you can learn from a sector or an industry that's completely different from you. And so sometimes in my workshops, I will take clients through exercises where, you know, fill in the blank, what would, you know, the usual suspects Google do or Zappos do, but, you know, what would a kindergartner teacher do? What would a fashion designer do? What would a waitress do? What would a scientific engineer do? Because each of those perspectives brings together a very different skill set and way to go about problem solving that your company may be able to learn from. So it's really two things. One is hiring in much more diverse and surprising ways and from some unusual areas. And the other is to benchmark against your company and, and your teams from a wider 
net, cast a wider net from where you're going to get inspiration and comparison about what actually does best in class mean. Do a lot of companies, in your opinion, operate using those two principles, hiring in diverse ways and not using lateral thinking? A lot of companies, no, do not do that, unfortunately, (laughs) in my experience. I think there's a couple of drivers working against movement in that direction. One is, you know, a bit of what I call superiority complex. We're very familiar with the term inferiority complex, but a superiority complex can be just as fatal. So, you know, we've always done it this way. It's not broke, don't fix it. But that's exactly, you know, to your point about Kodak, that's exactly when you should be on your game and really be exploratory. And and I can't emphasize enough this word curiosity. You know, Kodak had the technology available and accessible to them, but they wrongly assumed that there was no need to leverage it. There was no need to start experimenting with exploring it in in even smaller categories of verticals. So I think one of the things stopping a lot of companies from hiring more unusual suspects and benchmarking against other, you know, way different industries is a false sense of security. But in the opposite of security is just fear, fear of change. Change change really hard. It's challenging to get a critical mass of people willing to start moving and changing in a, in a new direction. So those are the two major reasons I find that companies have been reticent. And then unfortunately, by the time I start working with them, often they're in a state where they finally realize they've got to disrupt themselves because, well, an upstart or a a younger type of company has already started to disrupt them. Yeah, exactly. Incredibly insightful. So if you think about your business and your life right now, So you're an entrepreneur, you do a lot of writing, you teach. What's the most inspiring thing for you to do in your own career? Right now it's dance. I'm super (laughs) excited about having gotten back into dance. So I studied dance since I was four years old. And I promised myself when I got to college that I would never stop dancing. I was in the dance company in my college. And I really credit dance to helping me to, to succeed in college and to always again, be curious and find inspiration in in really interesting ways. And as you get old, if you're an old dancer and you're not trying to audition for a show or a company performance tomorrow, it's really hard to keep up with the craft. Dance has always helped me to stay in shape. And I've always found gyms incredibly boring. I swim, I dance, I walk, but as an older woman who danced, you know, the options are either, you know, the 20 somethings who are really trying to be professional dancers or, you know, a a more, a class that maybe you could take now that you're not in as good shape with a 14 year old, which is not a reasonable option. So (laughs) there's actually a great new studio called Dance Fit. And I, I live in Philadelphia and it's in my neighborhood. And I have been going only a few months now, really since January, and it's totally rocked my world. And it's because for me, there's something very kinesthetic about the way I live and learn. And I went to a Quaker prep school for high school, and it was a very intensive academic environment. One of the things that they really did well, I think, was, you know, because it was Quaker, there was the spirituality meeting for worship during the week but they required you to do sports. And what I took away from that experience was I really learned from that the physical activity always helps me to balance my mind. 
So I'm so happy right now that I can go and take stretch classes and hip hop classes and bar fit and dance and all types of movement classes that are fun, that have nothing to do with like building muscles or losing weight, but it's much more about expression and it's a lot of fun. And and in the process, you stay really healthy. So that for me is it's actually really fueling my outlook in a really positive way and my creativity. So I, I credit it hugely for how great I'm feeling about life and work right now. Well, that is absolutely incredible. So how can people, how can people find out about Figure Eight Thinking and more about you? Sure. So my website is Figure Eight Thinking. That's the number eight, not spelled out. So it's just F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight thinking.com. And on there, you can link to my ink articles. I actually have two working frameworks. I've, I've developed workshops out of that are in the research tab of my website. And I also am represented by Big Speak, the Speakers Bureau. So I do a lot of speaking now. I resigned from my full-time professorship. Now I'm a, I'm a part-time Pennsylvania, and I'm a fellow at Paris D School, but mainly really my work is working with clients on, I, I always say my goal is to change lives through ideas. And I do that through helping them optimize creativity. And the two frameworks that you'll see on my research tab of my website are around the way I explain what creativity is. It's called the 3i creativity. Framework. And then my Wonder Rigor framework, and that will be my next book. So I have a book called Strategic Design Thinking. I edited that book and I have a range of practitioners and scholars who are writing really about design thinking. But my next book will not be an academic book and it will be, and actually I shouldn't say that Strategic Design Thinking is an academic book. It's really targeted for practitioners and uh, say grad students and it's very accessible But my next book will be Stories of Wonder and Rigor. And the Wonder-Rigor framework is really around intuitive leadership. I observe that the way dancer choreographers work and problem solve is they are really system designers and they flow very well between rigor and wonder. And so many of my clients and so much of our education system has huge emphasis on rigor, on structure, on check sheets and, and that sort of thing. But Rigor cannot be sustained without wonder. And the traditional arts are excellent at this because you have to daydream, you have to suppose, you have to pause. And so I'm developing a diagnostic tool to help people go back and forth to this. But when you go to my website, you'll see the archetypes I've developed. But that's my passion project right now is turning Wonder Rigor into a book to really help a range of organizations and individuals on, on a broader scale to balance and flow between being wondrous and being rigorous. Hmm, just brilliant. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I have one more question for you, though. Do you still design clothing and hats? I do not. I have a room in our home. You could call it a she suite. (laughs) (laughs) But I have my sewing machine there. So actually, the first sewing machine I bought as a young adult to start Nat's Hats. I bought it in the garment district from two old Italian men for probably $78. And it's one of those beautiful black iron sewing machines with the floral, you know, singer floral flowers painted on it. 
which is now more of like a, a work of art that's like on display. But I have in my in my room that I go to just to chill out. I have a sewing machine, and now I kind of just do mending, and it's still a space for functional art. But I'm not sewing in the way that I once did. No, <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Nixon, for being a part of the Female Insight Zone today. Your thoughts and ideas that you shared with us were really very insightful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.